Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, and thank you for tuning in. You are listening to Fiscum All, your weekly consistency check on America's political and legal file systems. I'm your host, T. Greg Doucette, here in studio with Mike the Sound Guy, and we are broadcasting to you from the heart of downtown Durham, North Carolina, which if you were on Twitter, you might have noticed was a little famous this past week. We're going to talk about that later on. But this is also Monday, August 21st. This will be the day that we have a solar eclipse, the first time in, I think, 38, 39 years. And as part of that, I want to give a shout-out to one of our Samson sponsors on our Patreon page. Dr. Trey Benfield uh, is actually not only sponsoring the podcast, but he is with Patty Vision Center in Roxborough, and that's where I get my eyes checked. Uh, so I actually have some Eclipse sunglasses that I got from him. Uh, Dr. Benfield does not have any pets of his own. We usually profile our sponsors and their pets, but uh, he and his sons are avid Pokemon Go players. Him and six-year-old Miles will go out uh, around their, where they live and just catch stuff. And I know because I actually met Miles at a, uh, a baseball game and we were comparing Pokemon Go Menagerie. I'm an avid player as well when Samson and I go for walks. And uh, Miles actually has a lot more than I do. I was kind of jealous. So uh, Dr. Benfield will take Miles out and then their two-year-old son Blake will uh, come along, catch stuff, and basically have digital pets that we can profile in lieu of physical pets. So Dr. Benfield, thank you for sponsoring us. And if Miles is listening, Miles, I'm still jealous of your collection and uh, keep out and catching them all. Uh, for those of you that want to join, you can go to our Patreon page. It is patreon.com slash fisk. That is slash F-S-C-K. Uh, we do have a video of Samson finding a family of deer that went up over the weekend, as well as a picture of him uh, licking his chops as he's waiting for a treat. So we also normally give thanks to one of our Law 140 sponsors at this point in the podcast, but we're not going to do that this week because I picked the Law 140 topic. We're going to be talking about my town of Durham and some of the shenanigans that have gone on in the past week. So we will be talking about uh, what it takes to constitute a riot, participating in a riot, and how all of that plays out as far as uh, basis for arrest and convicting someone in court. So that will be the Law 140 segment. Please make sure to join the conversation online. You can follow us on Twitter at Fiskemall, that is at F-S-C-K-E-M-A-L-L. Follow me on Twitter at Greg underscore Doucette, that is at G-R-E-G underscore D-O-U-C. E-T-T-E. And of course, you can find the Fiskamall page on Facebook as well as our website, Fiskamall.com. I'm going to go quickly through the politics this week. I'm not going to talk too much about what's going on federally. Uh, Steve Bannon has been fired slash resigned slash this is all kind of a setup to try and remove a potential lightning rod for the administration. Um, there's not a whole lot to talk about there. He's still got the president's cell phone. He's still going to be running the White House. But as far as how our beloved Papaya POTUS, Donald Trump, uh, his week went, it's best to kind of just give you a series of audio clips. So here's the one from Saturday, which you'll remember was the day that Nazis uh, killed 32-year-old Heather Heyer. Here is the first Trump clip. But we're closely following the terrible events unfolding in Charlottesville, Virginia. We condemn in the strongest possible terms this egregious display of hatred, bigotry, and violence on many sides. On many sides. So that was Saturday. We had the on many sides approach. Didn't say anything at all Sunday. I guess people in the White House realized that this was polling badly. So on Monday, you had this. Racism is evil. 
And those who cause violence in its name are criminals and thugs, including the KKK, neo-Nazis, white supremacists, and other hate groups that are repugnant to everything we hold dear as Americans. Now, if you happen to have watched those remarks live, it was hilarious because it's obvious Trump was reading from a teleprompter and felt incredibly uncomfortable having to utter those words. Uh, David Duke, in particular, tweeted out a condemnation of him, telling him he needed to take a look at who got him elected uh, in November. And then magically, right after David Duke decided to criticize him, this is what you had on Tuesday. You had some very bad people in that group. But you also had people that were very fine people on both sides. What about the alt-left that came charging at the, as you say, the alt-right? Do they have any semblance of guilt? Let me ask you this. What about the fact they came charging, that they came charging with clubs in their hands, swinging clubs? Do they have any problem? I think they do. Wait a minute. I'm not finished. I'm not finished, fake news. That was a horrible day. I watched those very closely, much more closely than you people watched it. And you have, uh, you, you had a group on one side that was bad, and you had a group on the other side that was also very violent. And nobody wants to say that. You know why nobody wants to say that? Because it didn't actually happen. This was one of the most covered things that has happened in the past few weeks because you've got not only media coverage of it, but you've got a bazillion people there with their camera phones. Had there been anyone from the, quote, alt-left charging with clubs, it would have been covered. You didn't see that because it didn't happen. So that is your president. Of course, a bunch of Republican Congress critters came out with statements talking about how outrageous it was. You know, and this this reminds me so much of comics. I don't know how many of you are comic lovers. I am, of course. If you couldn't tell by me playing Pokemon Go, uh, I also play uh, Marvel Contest of Champions on my phone when I'm sitting in court. I love comic books, love Marvel, love their movies and everything else. But one of the things that always was funny to me is you see in Captain America, for example, the Red Skull, who's a Nazi, will have all kinds of other criminal accomplices, but every couple years you'll have a storyline where one of his accomplices, who's totally down with killing people and robbing things and so on, discovers he's a bona fide Nazi and then flips out. And the guy's always like, you know, I might be a criminal, but I'm an American criminal, by golly. And that's basically what has happened this week with Republicans. You know, they have allowed this stuff to go on for months. I mean, this is the same thing that Trump has been doing since before he got inaugurated. Nothing is new here. It just happens that it's now polling poorly. So the people that have been his enablers now all of a sudden want to try and distance themselves from the president. I hope all of them get defeated in 2018 because it's a little too little too late and they refuse to rein this guy in and it just gets worse. So that's enough about the kimchi Klansman, our nacho Nazi, the papaya potus Donald Trump. Uh, the rest of the politics discussion is going to focus on Durham because I got to give you a little bit of setup for our Law 140 segment. But back on Monday, so this is the 14th, of course, Charlottesville was on Saturday. Well, on Monday, there was a protest uh, outside of our old, old courthouse. So we have three courthouses in Durham. You have the new courthouse that opened about three years ago, I want to say. That's where we practice now. Uh, before that, we had the old courthouse that was the block over from my office. That's where I started practicing uh, back in 2012 when I first got my law license and when I was an intern in the district attorney's office, we were there. And then before that building was opened, you had the old, old courthouse 
where now it's essentially county offices. And I walk past this building several times a week as I'm walking to the new courthouse. And one of the things we have there is a Confederate monument. It is a what you discover is actually a, a piece of shit as far as construction goes, but it's a statuette on top uh, with a monument, a stone tab, uh, obelisk, whatever the hell you call those things, the, the pedestal, the base, uh, and it's said as an inscription, in memory of the boys who wore the gray. Now, a couple things, they weren't boys, they were men, they were also traitors, they were committing treason against the United States by levying war against them and spent their time killing other Americans. We've avoided discussing all of that because we don't want to tell people that their great-great-grandfathers were traitors, but let's go ahead and just be real about that's one of the very crimes that is very clearly specified in the United States Constitution that the states they were fighting for ratified. Uh, Anyhow, so there was a protest outside of this monument, And in the middle of the protest, uh, one of the individuals, Takiya Thompson, who's a student at North Carolina Central University, uh, took a ladder, got up and put a rope around the neck of the statuette. Someone hooked it up to a car. The car drove off and boom, down goes the statue. Of course, there was a bunch of celebration and people kicking the statue, similar to what you saw in Iraq with people taking their shoes and hitting the statuettes of Saddam Hussein. And this, of course, became a tremendous controversy. So Durham police on Monday night released a statement saying that they didn't interfere because it was county property. Uh, The Durham County Sheriff's Office essentially said at a press conference on Tuesday uh, that they didn't get involved because they didn't want there to be violence. And if you think about it, that makes sense. I mean, you can replace a statue. You can't replace a human life. All right. So I thought it was the right response. You know, they could have done things a little bit differently, maybe had deputies stationed around the statuette to protect it. And if people, you know, swarmed them, maybe step back. But otherwise, the response was not bad. Well, that's when you get into the politics of it. So pay attention to all this as we go, because this will matter when we get to Friday. So Tuesday morning, At 8.44 a.m., the Durham County Sheriff's Office Facebook page has a new post in all caps, Sheriff's Office to Seek Charges for Vandalism of Statue, linking to a statement by our Sheriff Mike Andrews. There was, of course, a news conference later that day where the sheriff explained the non-intervention as well as saying that he intended to pursue felony charges against the people that were involved. And then later that evening, Takiya Thompson was the first person arrested, charged with felony inciting a riot and felony participating in a riot with property damage of at least $1,500. So that was Tuesday. Wednesday at 10.35 a.m., the Durham County Sheriff's Office Facebook page has a new post. In all caps, deputies arrest additional demonstrators for removal of statue, noting that they have arrested even more people and also charged them with felonies. And then we have another Facebook post at 1.25 p.m. in all caps, fourth demonstrator arrested for removal of statue. So that was Wednesday. Well, as part of all this is going on with these arrests, folks planned a separate protest where they were going to turn themselves in in solidarity uh, at the jail, saying that they were involved with taking down the statue. There's a picture of the uh, outside the Durham County Jail that went viral uh, Thursday morning. Well, Thursday morning, before that all happened, at 7.45 a.m., there's a new post on the Durham County Sheriff's Office Facebook page that says that the uh, sheriff had issued a statement in response to a planned demonstration at the Durham County Courthouse at 8 a.m. 
Then at 1.43 p.m., there's a new post on the Durham County Sheriff's Office Facebook page. It says in all caps, new arrests in destruction of Confederate statue. Again, linking to another statement by the sheriff. So by my count, starting from Monday night, there is one, two, three, four, five different Facebook posts, all linking to different statements that the Sheriff's Office has distributed to the public via social media. So fast forward to Friday. I have a court hearing for one of my cases, and I'm there at 9.30 for calendar call, which is when we have calendar call for the civil stuff. We figure out that my particular judge is in another courtroom uh, because, as a sidebar here, the General Assembly made some changes to how we deal with judges for uh, what we call emergency judges, people that can fill in when we're short a judge. And it's become a complete and total mess. So if I doubt any legislators are listening, but if they are, or people that happen to work at the General Assembly, please fix that particular change because it's a fucking disaster. Anyhow, there at 9.30 for calendar call, hear about our judge, and I'm just kind of sitting there. We go through a couple cases. I'm watching, playing video games on my phone. It gets about 10.30, and there's a span of time where there's nothing going on. And we don't really know why. One of the attorneys actually came up to me and said, hey, do you know what's going on? And I'm like, I have no idea. You know, the judge is on the bench. There are parties there ready to go. And we're just kind of sitting there for a solid 10 minutes easy. Um, well, I get summoned by the trial court coordinator who says that myself and opposing counsel need to come back to chambers to talk with our particular judge. And while we're there, we're talking about our case, but the judge mentions that uh, this particular judge has gotten information from the sheriff that there's going to be a Klan slash Nazi rally at 12 o'clock in the afternoon, starting at the Confederate statue. Uh, and there's going to be another one at five. So that's the information that gets told to us. And it's explained that they're trying to uh, have as many pieces of business done as quickly as possible to try and get people out of the courthouse and away from the downtown area. So rather than have the hearing for my case, that particular hearing was postponed. No big deal. This particular lawsuit's been going on for two years, so another month is not going to hurt anybody. So I go downstairs, see some other lawyers who all mention the same thing. They've heard there's going to be a Klan rally at noon. Uh, and, of course, I decide to check the Durham County Sheriff's Office Facebook page thinking that, hey, you know, they've done all these other Facebook posts. Surely there will be some information there. There is absolutely nothing. However, I do notice several of my other Facebook friends have posted that they, too, have heard the same thing that I now have heard from a judge who, in turn, was advised by the Sheriff's Office themselves. Um, so, of course, I'm concerned because I have staff. I have two female attorneys who work for me, and they're both African-American. So if there's going to be a Klan or Nazi rally downtown, I want to know about it so I can tell my black female employees that they don't have to stay at the office. They can go ahead and leave, because my office, as I mentioned, is right across the street from this particular Confederate statue. So I call Marissa, say, hey, I have heard that there's going to be this Klan rally. Feel free to pack up and leave. You don't have to stick around. And as I'm coming back to my office, East Main Street, which happens to be where my office is located, uh, is blocked off by sheriff's office cars. This is about uh, probably 11-ish. Street's blocked off. So I go in, unpack my stuff, 
hear from other attorneys in the building. Uh, one of the guys says, hey, do you want to go out with me and take pictures? We do. So I've actually posted pictures on Twitter at 1140, uh, letting people know that East Main Street is blocked off and that it's going to be a, a, tra- a challenge traveling downtown. Well, then fast forward a whole 30 minutes when there's finally a Durham County Sheriff's Office Facebook post that says, quote, we are urging the public to avoid circulating rumors on social media and instead wait for verified information from officials monitoring the situation. Guess what, guys? That ship kind of set sail. All right, There were already several hundred people downtown. Several businesses had closed because they had heard the same thing. And the sheriff's office was the source for at least some of that information. Now, I'm not going to pretend that the sheriff's office was the only source of anything. Because the fact is, the only information that the police exclusively have is the stuff the police themselves create via investigation or whatever else. You know, if someone is telling the sheriff's office something, odds are they've told somebody else. So that's the likelihood. You know, there's likely multiple sources for the same info. But this whole idea that, you know, we're now pretending like we had no role in this. Please don't share unverified information. 40-something minutes after you've closed the street, a solid 20, 30-something minutes after there's several hundred people downtown uh, is a little bit ridiculous. So, of course, we end up having a big old block party. These 200 people circle the block. There is no high-end Klan rally with a bunch of people. Uh, Eyewitness reports from one of our city councilors, Charlie Reese, said he saw at least one of them uh, in one of the county buildings got doused with water. And then as that particular individual was escorted out via uh, guards, Uh, Two other people joined him in the particular uh, parking deck that he was at. So we don't know what this was supposed to be. We don't know uh, where this information was coming from. Um, And it was no big deal. I mean, there was nothing terribly violent about it. You had part of downtown shut down for a little bit, but it's nothing we haven't dealt with before. Well, then you get to Sunday, and there's a new statement that I'm just going to go ahead and read verbatim from the sheriff. It says, quote, we're aware of the concerns posted on social media. However, our critics were not sitting in the command post monitoring and reviewing incoming intel throughout the day, which included rumored Klan sightings with the potential of putting lives at risk. Furthermore, the sheriff's office had a duty and obligation to take precautionary measures, including notifying leaders in the community of the potential of a counter-protest to the demonstrators on Monday evening. Sharing that information with key individuals, including a representative of demonstrators who were staged outside the courthouse Friday morning, was in no way a signal for them to independently sound the alarm ahead of law enforcement, potentially triggering needless panic and anxiety. Our goal was to avoid the possibility of groups with opposing viewpoints violently clashing in the streets of Durham. A tornado watch is not the same as a tornado warning. My agency was still in the process of verifying the information that was shared as a courtesy and in an abundance of caution with key individuals. We're grateful those who gathered in the streets were able to do so safely while law enforcement and other emergency officials worked hard to ensure their safety. Had my office never said a word and the Klan never arrived, it would have been a normal Friday in the Bull City. Had it never given key leaders advanced warning and the Klan arrived, my agency would have been criticized for being silent with prior knowledge, albeit unverified. Now, there's a lot of problems with this particular statement. First, you'll notice the sheriff's office admits that they were in fact sharing this information, which I don't have a problem with. That was prudent. That makes sense, especially a week after Charlottesville. It makes total sense to share that information if you have a credible threat. Taking the line, a tornado watch is not the same as a tornado warning. I agree. So post something online that says, hey, clan watch. 
Conditions are favorable for a clan rally. We'll keep you posted as we learn more. People are smart enough to try and figure that stuff out. But then you've got this whole notion that sharing information with key community leaders was not supposed to be disseminated out beyond those community leaders. What the fuck did you think people were going to do with the information? You know, did you think that you're going to tell judges who aren't in turn going to tell attorneys appearing in front of them when their cases are getting unexpectedly continued? Did you expect the people representing the counter-protesters were just going to keep that quiet, saying, hey, you guys are being arrested. You're currently in court for this, uh, taking down the statue. By the way, the Klan's going to show up. Were you supposed to keep that last sentence to yourself? That just doesn't make sense. No one logically thinks that way. But then you've also got this whining at the end. Had it never given key leaders advanced warning and the clan arrived, my agency would have been criticized for being silent with prior knowledge. No one's trying to criticize you for sharing the information. The information should have been shared. The criticism is that once you realize the clan wasn't actually going to show up, instead of taking responsibility for it and say, hey, we had a credible threat, we thought it was prudent to share, nothing happened, good, you instead try to play it off like you had no role in it. It's ridiculous. It betrays a complete lack of responsibility. And that, to me, is a problem. I don't blame the sheriff's office for helping to spread this information. I'm thankful they did because it gave me a heads up that my black employees could go ahead and leave the office because I didn't want them around in case things started popping off. But I'm offended that my tax money is paying for an agency to then pretend after the fact that their hands are clean and they had absolutely no involvement with it. It's totally ridiculous, especially from law enforcement. So that's it for the politics for this week. There's, of course, always more going on, but my, uh, my patience tends to run thin. Let's hop into some of the criminal justice news. So in, in the courts, we've got a pair of cases, including a potentially big one out of the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. There's a 2-1, a 2-2-1 panel decision in United States versus Ezra Griffith, where a conviction has been vacated because of an invalid search warrant. And I'm not going to go into the details of the case, but one particular thing of interest was that the police raided person A's house thinking they're going to find a cell phone that could theoretically belong to person B. And while they're there, they take every single electronic device that is in the house. Now, it turns out in this particular case, the application for the search warrant was defective because it never actually mentioned that person B owned a cell phone. They were just raiding person A's house on a whim that person B might own a cell phone. But then the court went on anyway to note that even if the warrant was invalid for that particular reason, court continues saying, quote, but the warrant was also invalid for an additional reason. It's overbreadth in allowing the seizure of all electronic devices found in the residence. The officers executing the warrant made good on that authorization, seizing six cell phones and one tablet computer. The affidavit failed to establish probable cause to suspect that any cell phones or other electronic devices belonging to Griffith and containing incriminating information would be found in the apartment, yet the warrant did not stop with any devices owned by Griffith, which already would have gone too far. It broadly authorized seizures of all cell phones and electronic devices without regard to ownership. 
That expansive sweep far outstripped the police's proffered justification for entering the home to recover any devices owned by Griffith. Now, this is a huge holding for Fourth Amendment jurisprudence. I don't know if it's going to stick. Of course, you can appeal and have what is called an in-bank review where all of the judges for the circuit rehear the case. And then, of course, it can also be appealed to the Supreme Court. But if it stands, it's going to be a big deal because other circuits look to the decisions of their sister circuits as being persuasive. And then whenever a circuit goes the other direction, it creates what's called a circuit split, which increases the likelihood that the Supreme Court will intervene. So for right now, this is actually a big ruling, and it's got a lot of potential positive ramifications for those of us that think the government gets away with a bit too much in violation of the Bill of Rights. Uh, Speaking of, out of the Seventh Circuit, a 6-4 N-Bank decision has ruled that Robert Lee Stinson, uh, who served 23 years in prison for a crime he didn't commit based on bogus bite mark evidence, uh, is allowed to sue both the police detective and the two dentists that conspired to have him convicted based on this fake evidence. So that's a uh, it's a pretty noteworthy case there. I'll link that to you in the show notes. In terms of general legal news, the Charlotte School of Law here in North Carolina has been closed down. That happened this past week. Uh, one of the students actually blamed it on minorities, saying, quote, this may be the first documented case of a school affirmative actioning itself to death. Uh, which is entertaining because the only reason the Charlotte School of Law was able to continue scamming people out of money for as long as it did was because it kept insisting that it was a school of opportunity for minorities, which was totally ridiculous, just a way to try and bury them under mountains of debt and get the money from the government. But Charlotte School of Law is no more. In the Associated Press, there's an expose on forensics. Those of you that have been listening for a while might recall the uh, Law 140 that we covered scientific evidence and its admissibility. Well, this one discusses how bite marks, latent fingerprints, firearms identification, burn patterns and arson investigations, footwear patterns, and tire treads, uh, a lot of it is junk science that judges are letting in anyway and allowing people to get convicted even though they're later cleared because they didn't actually commit the crimes. Uh, CBS has an expose called Unequal Justice Under Law, talking about how some of that same bogus evidence uh, leads to people getting screwed unless you have a lot of money to hire a private attorney. It discusses the shortcomings in the public defender system in several different states and how public defenders aren't able to provide competent representation because they've just got so many cases and not enough resources to have each case handled on its own. So we'll give you the link for that. Uh, The Marshall Project has done a big data analysis looking at 400,000 homicides over a 24-year period. And what they have found is that if a random person kills another random person, it's only considered to be justified about two out of every 100 deaths. But if you happen to be a white person killing a black person, you get found justified 17 out of 100 times. Roughly one out of every five killings of blacks by whites is found to be justified. So that's just a reminder of how pervasive uh, racism is in our society. We like to pretend it doesn't exist. But when you actually look at the data, the data confirms that it's all over the place. So I will give you that link. That's featured in the New York Times but was a, by the Marshall Project. Uh, the Economist magazine has a column on, quote, the misplaced arguments against Black Lives Matter. Uh, you could probably guess the subject matter. I'll give you that one. Uh, in Slate, Josie Duffy Rice has a long-form piece on rehabilitation 
of violent offenders. So we talk a lot about how we've got mass incarceration and how that's creating huge problems as far as the aging prison population and how many people have criminal records. And one of the main topics of reform is releasing people who have committed minor nonviolent crimes. Well, of course, you've got a lot of people that have committed violent crimes as well. And the question becomes, are they deserving of a second chance? Do they get rehabilitation or are they perpetually tarred by the label of being a felon? So it's an interesting piece. I'll give you the link. And it raises some difficult questions because even in my mind, when I campaigned for the Senate last year, I talked about strengthening our sentencing guidelines to more harshly punish violent crime. Uh, and I've not really given a whole lot of thought to those folks when they get out. How do you, you know, make it easier for them to rebuild their life? So it's it's an it's a thought provoking piece. I'll put it that way. Uh, interesting news in the tech world. Apple, who I used to work for years ago, I love them to death. I'm a shameless Apple fanboy. I'm recording this on a MacBook Pro running GarageBand next to my iPhone. Um, they are building in what I'm calling a cop button. Um, I don't know if that's the official title, but essentially in the next version of iOS, if you touch the Touch ID button five times, it will disable Touch ID temporarily, which is important because we've talked before about how your fingerprints are not considered testimonial evidence. You can be compelled to put your finger on a Touch ID button to unlock the device. You cannot typically be compelled to divulge your passcode because giving that information is considered testimonial would violate your Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination unless you're offered immunity. So that is coming in iOS 11. We'll see if it survives any public backlash. In the state-by-state news, in California, the Alameda County Sheriff's Office retweeted the Periscope live feed of Richard Spencer, who happens to be a Nazi. Uh, He was doing a press conference. The Sheriff's Office just thought that was fascinating and retweeted it. Then when someone pointed out, hey, guys, Guys, you retweeted a Nazi. What the hell is going on? Uh, they said that it was an accident, but then they didn't unretweet it for several minutes after that. So, like, first, it takes effort to retweet something. It's not just a you click a button and it's done. You click a button, and then you have to click another button to confirm that you're retweeting it. And then to unretweet it, you just click a button again to unretweet. So you got the effort to type in that this was an accident, but then it was still on your feed. Something is off in the Alameda County Sheriff's Office. In Los Angeles, there's an LA Times column reviewing the 157 people killed by California police last year. Turns out one third of them are in LA County. So if you live in LA, there's a pretty good chance you could be shot dead by the police. Uh, In Orange County, Orange County Superior Court Judge Thomas Gethels sanctioned the district attorney's office by blocking them from seeking the death penalty against Scott DeCray, a guy that committed, I think it's either six or eight, I can't actually read my notes, uh, murdered several people. Well, it turns out there's a 19-page opinion. I'm not going to go through it all, but there's a lengthy uh, discussion by the judge about how both the district attorney's office and the sheriff's department uh, are shamelessly corrupt and aggressively hiding evidence on a regular basis. And it's not just happening in DeCray's case, but in several others, but of course happened in DeCray's case as well, ignoring court orders and a bunch of other stuff. So I'll give you that um, link to that opinion. It's, it's an interesting read. 
also in Orange County. Uh, Stephen Greenhut has a piece that is in reason. Uh, a jury has awarded a woman $2.25 million because she happened to be raped by a police officer. And the details of this are pretty ridiculous. Like, all rapes are bad, don't get me wrong. But there are just certain people that are just so fucking depraved. So 22-year-old Alexa Curtin calls police because she had a uh, significant argument with her boyfriend at the time, felt like it was dangerous, called 911. Uh, Officer Nicholas Lee Carapino showed up, and the deputy drove Miss Curtin to her car, and then while she was there, he's commenting about her underwear, tells her to stay in the police car when they get to her vehicle. The officer left the car got out of his clothes, got out of his uniform, rather, into plain clothes, uh, then got into the uh, car again and raped her inside of it. Um, it's, it's pretty disturbing. So the actual trial testimony was even worse than that, but this idea that you know, you're responding to the scene of a potential crime and you use that as an uh, opportunity to get your rocks off is just is wildly disturbing. Uh, down in Florida, in Columbia County, Three ex-prison guards have now been found guilty of conspiring to kill a black inmate. Turns out all three of them were part of the Ku Klux Klan, working for the government, earning your tax money, being part of law enforcement. In Georgia, Gwinnett County Magistrate Judge James Hinkle has been suspended for posting his thoughts about the Charlottesville protests, saying, quote, the nutcases tearing down monuments are equivalent to ISIS destroying history. Uh, If you think that taking down Confederate monuments erected 80-something years after the Civil War ended that were uniformly manufactured, and there's actually an expose somewhere where it shows that the Southern statues in several cases are identical to the Northern statues because the same company was selling statues to both sides. Uh, But if you think that's the same as ISIS, you're batshit crazy. Turns out this is not the first time this particular judge has had these types of comments. He said previously that he was proud to be a deplorable infidel, And then when the Obama Treasury Department mentioned that they were going to put a black woman on the $20 bill, Harriet Tubman, he said, quote, well, the U.S. Treasury has just announced the ugliest $20 bill or any money ever. So that is how you handle your judges in Georgia. Uh, In Baltimore, there's an expose in the Baltimore Sun about Kushner Companies. Yes, the company owned by Jared Kushner, the uh, son-in-law of our Papaya POTUS. Uh, their company actually encourages judges to issue arrest warrants for people who owe them money, and somehow that's a thing in Maryland. I did not know this. Typically, you can't be jailed in North Carolina for being poor, but in Maryland, that's a totally normal thing. Uh, also, there's a Washington Post editorial talking about the need for the Maryland state prison system to hire 600 new guards, and the 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 thrust of the editorial is questionable on its own. I mean, if you can't staff your prisons, it's time to have fewer prisons, personally. Um, But the reason why they can't hire people is interesting, particularly in light of that Florida story I just mentioned. Here's the pull quote. It says, quote, The shrunken applicant pool and paltry harvest of successful hires are a function of several factors, including Maryland's low unemployment rate, the diminished status of law enforcement careers, and, critically, the requirement since 2015 that all prison guard candidates undergo polygraphs. 
That polygraph requirement enacted by the General Assembly in response to a scandal involving guards having sex with and supplying contraband to inmates at the Baltimore City Detention Center has depressed application numbers, while at the same time has yielded information during the tests that disqualifies many applicants. What kind of shit do you get into that you can't pass a polygraph and you're trying to serve in law enforcement? What the fuck? So that's in Maryland. Uh, in Massachusetts, in Springfield, a police officer, Conrad Larivieri, I'm probably fucking up his name, but I don't particularly care. Uh, this guy, serving and protecting the public, decided to post his thoughts about uh, Miss Hire's murder in Charlottesville, saying, quote, ha 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 ha, love this, maybe people shouldn't block roads. So that's one of your officers in Springfield, Massachusetts, justifying vehicular homicide, thinking it's hilarious. Uh, over in Boston, a Northeastern University student was arrested because he happened to look like someone else, because we all know all black people look alike. Uh, when asked why he was being approached by police because he was just trying to walk home, uh, the officer said that he was being a smartass and decided to arrest him for that. Uh, of course, all of this is on cell phone video because first rule of Fisk, police will continue to do dumb shit even when they're being recorded. That young man's cases, uh, the charges against him has been dismissed. But that was this week in Boston. In Minnesota, a Minneapolis cop, also on cell phone video, is standing over a handcuffed man as he just lets a security guard repeatedly punch the man in the face. Uh, this particular guy was at a nightclub. I guess he was, I don't know if he was leaving or was evicted, doesn't particularly matter. Uh, he's on the ground in cuffs, the officer standing over him, but the guard is just wailing on him anyway because he can, and of course, all of it was caught on video. Uh, we got two different stories in New York. One is surprising. The other is stereotypical. Uh, both of them in New York City. The surprising one is that a group calling itself Justice League NYC uh, had a press conference in support of NFL quarterback Colin Kaepernick, and there were roughly 100 NYPD officers in attendance. Among the statements you heard was, quote, as officers, we confirm the problem Colin took a knee for exists within the NYPD. That is a stunning admission, and I can only imagine how uh, fiercely the brass were shitting their pants uh, because that's that's that was very unexpected. I can't even I saw that on Twitter and I'm like, wow, that's wild. Well, not to be outdone, the New York City Sergeant's Benevolent Association released a video complaining about blue racism. And it's so ridiculous. I couldn't even get through the whole thing. I made it about halfway through and I finally had to cut it off. Guys, I don't know if they've taught you this at the police academy. You get to take your uniforms off, okay? This whole notion of blue racism is ridiculous. Don't repeat it to anyone because if you're always wearing your uniform 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days out of a year, there's something wrong with you. You probably smell bad. All right. You get to take your uniform off. The only way people know you're still a cop when you're not in uniform is if you voluntarily tell them you don't get to take off being black or being Hispanic or being American Indian or being Asian. You don't get to take any of that off. So just cut the blue racism shit uh, here in North Carolina. Yes, we're talking about North Carolina extra this week uh, down in Raleigh. This is not a police story so much as a media story and how we talk about uh, black suspects versus white ones. The headline reads, Father accused of leaving his five children alone while he went to work. Now, that seems terrible. I mean, gosh, that's child abuse right there. Dad just goes to work, leaves his five kids there. Well, if you go to the third paragraph in this particular story, you will learn 
that the father left his kids with a babysitter. And it was the babysitter who abandoned the kids. And then if you go even further down in the story, you learn that the father's wife, he's married, uh, has cancer, and he's the sole breadwinner who is now being arrested and held on bond uh, for child abuse because he happened to leave his kids with a babysitter who didn't do their job. So that is here in Raleigh, North Carolina. Uh, In Ohio, you might recall we mentioned this uh, Euclid case last week where police were arresting Richard Hubbard III and beating the daylights out of him. And the focus was on them beating Hubbard. And I'd mentioned my concern was how quickly they arrested the girlfriend the minute she pulled out her cell phone video to record. Well, we got kind of a hint as to why that is. It turns out the officers were lying about that situation. Uh, From the story, quote, the initial statement from police in the Cleveland suburb of Euclid said Richard Hubbard III, who was pulled over on suspicion of having a suspended driver's license, had refused Officer Michael Ambiance's orders to face away after getting out of his car August 12th and then began resisting. But the video obtained this week in a public records request appears to show Amiot not giving Hubbard a chance to comply. So that might explain why they didn't want anyone else recording what took place, because they basically decided they were going to arrest this guy and beat him for sport, and they happened to get caught. Uh, Over in Oregon, Clark County Jail Deputy Christopher North has finally been fired for ejaculating on an inmate. Uh, A 29-year-old woman was locked in a changing room in her civilian clothes. This guard entered, pressed himself against her, ejaculated, and then left. He ended up getting arrested, but then the prison still kept him on payroll for a solid week after that, but he has since been fired. Over in Tennessee, in Nashville, the American Bar Association decided to drop in on a courthouse and monitor things for a little bit. And what they found is that if you're charged with a misdemeanor, there's a full-blown court system where you are never advised of your right to counsel. There's no judges involved. There's no defense attorneys involved. It's just you show up, you talk to a prosecutor, and prosecutors are working pleas, and people are signing them without ever knowing they have a right to an attorney. In Texas, McKinney, Texas, we think, we're not entirely sure, a police officer and academy instructor, Phil Ryan, posted an extensive Facebook note advocating for the death penalty for anyone who happens to deface a monument. Uh, He labels it as a PSA, uh, friendly advice from your Uncle Phil, says, quote, bottom line, if someone is destroying a monument or statue that isn't theirs, you can defend it by force during the day with deadly force at night. He's also got uh, snippets taken from the criminal code or Texas penal code, whatever the hell they call it down there. Uh, But just know your police in Texas believe that defacing any kind of property merits the death penalty. And then last but not least, we don't typically talk about cases in other countries, but sometimes they offer forewarnings of what can happen here. Uh, In Canada... In Ottawa, I'm probably pronouncing that wrong too. Apologies to our Canadian listeners. Uh, But police have started using zip codes, or they call them postal codes up there, to find, basically do a heat map of areas where a high number of residents have expired licenses. They then start patrolling those areas to issue them tickets. Now, this is one of the challenges that has come from having big data and all this information you know, that you they call it predictive policing, but really what you're doing is you're targeting certain neighborhoods. In the case of these licenses, people that are probably poor and unable to uh, deal with traffic tickets or renewals or whatever else. And you're deliberately going out of your way to fuck up their lives even more when you should be focusing on, you know, rapes, murders, homicides, pedophilia, whatever else. 
and people that are actually a threat to the community as opposed to just driving with an expired license. So it's not unique to Canada. Some of the bigger police departments here have tried it out, but it's very similar to how we deal with uh, marijuana use. You know, police will pick certain beats on purpose. It tends to be communities of color and they'll just walk around sniffing out weed trying to give people tickets because the government uses it to make money so that's up in canada our canadian friends be forewarned you better keep your license uh, up to date because otherwise the government will come knocking on your door so folks that's going to do it for the weekly criminal justice roundup let's go ahead and transition into our law 140 topic about that particular uh, durham case and the felonies that are involved So we mentioned earlier in the show that Takiya Thompson, who's a student at North Carolina Central University, has been charged with five different crimes relating to removing a piece of trash participation trophy to Confederate soldiers that happens to be in front of our old, old courthouse here in Durham. They've been charged with uh, vandalism, defacing a statue, both misdemeanors. I don't recall what disorderly conduct I think was the third misdemeanor. And then two felonies, uh, one of inciting a riot and then one of participating in a riot with property damage in excess of $1,500. And I mentioned that neither the police nor the sheriff's department stopped the statue from being pulled down because they didn't want the protest to get violent. It was very orderly. It was very celebratory. Uh, there was nothing terribly disorderly about it, certainly nothing violent about it. Well, that, of course, has led to a lot of discussion on Twitter because you have people who think that we should just willy-nilly charge everyone with felonies anytime they do something we don't like, complete lack of understanding or lack of care of the entire notion of a structured sentencing system. You know, not every crime is punishable by the death penalty for a reason, same deal with felonies. Not every crime rises to the level of being felonious. And part of why that matters, as we talked about this before, the mere act of being arrested creates a public record. It creates what we call collateral consequences. You have your mugshot spread around Google. You have it being... Uh, indicated that you've been charged with a felony and people just assume that because you've been charged that means you're guilty of it even if you're not. All of that stuff happens the moment the government decides they want to charge you with a crime. You know, if someone came to my door right now and arrested me, charged me with murder, even though I've never killed anyone in my life, the act of doing that will cause me to be fingerprinted, photographed, handcuffed, transported, and generate an entry in our calendar system here in North Carolina that people doing public background checks will see whenever they punch up my name. You know, if you were to go to come to a courthouse here and type in my name in the system, it's called ACES. It's the Automated Criminal and Infraction System. You can see everything I've got going back to when I first moved to North Carolina. You know, I think there's like two different expired registration tickets from 2002. You know, that are still in there. So all of this stuff matters, of course, because charging these kids with felonies was vindictive. It was political. It was to satisfy the public's bloodlust that a bunch of kids happened to take down a statue because there's no chance in hell at all whatsoever that the government can actually prove beyond a reasonable doubt the elements of that particular crime. So let's start with how all that works. So remember, second rule of Fisk, you start at the source. This particular crimes that were charged, these felonies, both require involvement in a riot. And the, what a riot is, is defined in statute. 
North Carolina General Statute Section 14-288.2 says, quote, A riot is a public disturbance involving an assemblage of three or more persons, which, by disorderly and violent conduct or the imminent threat of disorderly and violent conduct, results in injury or damage to persons or property or creates a clear and present danger of injury or damage to persons or property. Now, there are different standards that are applied to determine whether or not you should be arrested versus whether or not you can be convicted. So to be arrested, there has to be what is called probable cause. The Fourth Amendment to the United States Constitution says, quote, the right of the people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures shall not be violated, and no warrants shall issue but upon probable cause supported by oath or affirmation and particularly describing the place to be searched and the persons or things to be seized. And that applies to arrest warrants as well as search warrants. So the challenge, of course, is that there's no real firm description of what probable cause is. So kind of the, the layman's view of it is that it's got to be a reasonable belief that a crime has been committed. So if you have used before this football analogy, if you think of probable cause as you've breaking midfield, you get just over the 50 yard line, you've got probable cause to have someone arrested. And there's a Supreme Court case that kind of goes into this and how it should be viewed, Illinois versus Gates, 1983 case, and it revolves around the reliability of a confidential informant. And the Supreme Court said that probable cause to arrest has to be decided based on what is called the totality of the circumstances. So you're looking at all of the information that the police have available to them, including whether or not a tip is reliable, uh, whether or not there's been a track record for that particular informant of being truthful, all of these things. Any other indicia of reliability, that's magic language, indicia of reliability, uh, determines whether or not you reach that midfield mark to get you probable cause. And that applies in all circumstances, not just informants. Anytime you have a potential arrest, you look at the totality of the circumstances and decide if you reach that 50-yard line threshold. Now, the challenge, of course, here is that both the police department and the sheriff's office didn't get involved. And the after-the-fact justification for it was that they didn't want things to get violent. So if you don't have something that is violent, you can't meet the elements for the crime of being involved in a riot. A riot didn't exist. So the mere act of charging these people with crimes that can't be proven doesn't matter what standards you use. The government has provided their own explanation that one of the elements is missing. But let's pretend they didn't do that. Let's instead say that they've got enough to justify the initial arrest. How do we go about convicting them? Well, to convict somebody, it has to be with proof beyond a reasonable doubt. That's from a Supreme Court case in 1970 called N. Ray Winship. We discussed this back in uh, a few podcasts ago where we talked about uh, North Carolina's uh, case law regarding rape. And there's a case in Victor versus Nebraska, 1994, that discusses jury instructions on how you explain to the jury what proof beyond a reasonable doubt is. So North Carolina uses this verbiage, says, quote, the burden of proof is on the state to prove to you that the defendant is guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. 
A reasonable doubt is not a vain or fanciful doubt. It is a doubt based on reason and common sense, arising out of some or all of the evidence that has been presented, or the lack or insufficiency of the evidence, as the case may be. Proof beyond a reasonable doubt is proof that fully satisfies or entirely convinces you of the defendant's guilt. Now, that is considered the highest evidentiary standard that we have for any case anywhere. So if we stick with the uh, football analogy, you got to get right up to the goal line. You don't have to break the plane and score a touchdown, but you got to get right next to it past 99 yards from the other goal, you know, and there is absolutely no chance at all whatsoever in hell that the government can get there on these two felonies relating to a riot because the government becomes its own star witness for the defense. The fact that the police and the sheriff's office did not get involved and then explained afterwards the reason why they didn't get involved makes it clear that this was not a violent event. Even if it didn't make it clear, at the very least, it provided reasonable doubt. So if it went to a jury trial, those felonies would be found not guilty, no questions asked. And that highlights the problem with the fact that all of these kids have been charged with felonies because it's vindictiveness by your government. That's why I got into criminal defense. Criminal defense is not a naturally Republican field if you think of Republicanism as law and order. Because the assumption is we're protecting criminals, and who wants to do that? But the problem is that law and order applies to the government just as much as it applies to the citizens. And if you have a government that is empowered to hit you with any criminal charge they want, even if there's no hope at all they would ever prove it, draping around your neck the collateral consequences that come with that particular charge, that's a problem. And the only way to stop that from happening all the time is to have people willing to provide a zealous criminal defense, hold the government to its own standards. We didn't come up with a beyond a reasonable doubt standard. That's not a criminal defense lawyer creation. That's the government's creation. That's what the courts have said we need to use. And someone needs to hold the government honest for that because in this particular case with these particular students, the sheriff's office has completely overcharged them. And it's not even the sheriff's job to make that determination. You know, if I was the sheriff, and I'm not, I never would be. I'd never even try to run for it. I wouldn't have said, we're going to go after these kids with felonies. What I would have said is, we're going to work with the district attorney's office to figure out all appropriate charges and proceed accordingly. Super easy. The catch, of course, is that doesn't help you get reelected. So, folks, that's going to do it for this particular Law 140 segment. I appreciate all of you for listening in. Thank you for letting me pick the topic this week. I'll see if I can get one of our Law 140 sponsors to pick the topic for next week so y'all can have something uh, different from my usual ranting about stuff. Please make sure to join the conversation online if you haven't yet. We are at Fiskamall on Twitter or me at Greg underscore Doucette. Listen in at Fiskamall.com. Make sure to subscribe so that way you can get these episodes as soon as they come out. And if you're so inclined, would love to have you leave us a five-star rating or a written review at your leisure. So folks, on behalf of myself, Mike the Sound Guy, and Dr. Benfield, by the way, make sure to wear glasses if you go watch the eclipse. Thank all of you for listening, and I hope you have a blessed week ahead. Mm-hmm.